The following message is from Benediction Church in Hamilton, Ontario. So uh, let me introduce you to, um, to this fellow. His name is Marcian, uh, and he's actually a heretic. Doesn't he just look like a heretic? Doesn't he just have a heretic vibe to him? He just looks so smug and heretical. Uh, he was actually... How many people have heard of Marcian? Oh, really? Hey, a few of us. I wasn't expecting that, even that many. Um, so Marcian was excommunicated from the church. He was put outside by the leaders of the, of the church in um, the middle of the, the second century because of things that he was teaching that were considered uh, heretical, dangerous. Um, he, uh, Marcian rejected the Old Testament. He actually taught that the God of the Old Testament was cruel and mean, and he created the world evil and wicked and broken in order to punish uh, humanity uh, and, and sort of like have a gag, sort of like, uh, uh, you know, have a rib on, on people. And, and Marcion taught that Jesus came to save us uh, from that God. So Marcion taught that the, that the Yahweh of the Old Testament, Yahweh, is not the Abba of the New Testament, the God and Father of Jesus. And so the church was right the church was right to get together and to put him outside and say, this is outside the fence. To say, this is outside the fence of Christianity. Now, so centuries and centuries later, uh, none of us, I imagine, would know anybody who identifies as a Marcionite. But I think if we're honest, you may have gone through a, a season, or I actually know people who, as they relate to God... Uh, they think of God as this mean, sort of curmudgeonly old white man in the sky with a big white beard who is looking for opportunities to smite us. And Jesus is the nice part. J- Jesus is the one we, we, we like. And Jesus sort of says to us, yeah, don't worry. I got, uh, I got this. Uh, you Don't worry about him. He's really nice once you get to know him. You just stick with me and, uh, and I'll sort of sneak you in through the back door. So this isn't an ancient, or this isn't a new problem. This is actually an ancient problem that the Apostles' Creed uh, kind of helps us to correct. So we're going, we're going through this series called the Apostles' Creed, what and how the church believes. Uh, it's not just why do we believe these things, obviously that's really important, but what do we do with these things? How do we treat each other uh, if, we, if we believe these things? And at the bottom of the screen, as we go along, I realize I'm not going to be able to answer every question that uh, is going to come up as we think about who God is as, as Father and Almighty and Creator of heaven and earth. But if a question comes up, please feel free to text it in. Uh, I promise not to use your name if you're in my contacts list. Um, so these will be anonymous questions. And then at the end of the service, if some questions come up, I will, I'll do my best to answer those. But this morning, we're asking, what do we mean when we say, I believe in God the Father Almighty, Creator of heaven and earth? Okay, what do we mean when we say, I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth? Now, there are three parts to this, and we're going to take them in turn. The first, what do we mean when we, when we say God is Father? What do we mean that when we say that God is Father? One of those things is Trinity. Embedded in the creed is the idea that God is Trinity. Now, I'm going to say a word to you kids, especially here. First of all, you've probably, have you heard the word Trinity before? Okay, so... Some, of the, some grown-ups around us, and some of you who grew up in the church, you, you actually you were taught to think of the, the Trinity as a mystery. And I want to defuse that a little bit. Because it's not, it's not like it's you know, more complicated more, or, more, or harder to understand than other things that we, we sort of can't figure out. 
So let me give you the Trinity in, in, a, in a nutshell, in an easy way to understand, okay? You with, you with me so far? Okay, so you're like, what, Trinity? You're going you're gonna to explain that? Trinity is our best answer to the question, how is it that the Bible can say that there is one God, and yet there are three persons in Scripture who clearly do the things that only God can do? Okay? Both of those things are true. Scripture gives us one person. It tells us that there is only one God, and it says that there are these, it shows us there are these three distinct persons who do the things that only God can do. How is that possible? And the best answer that we've got is Trinity. That's what this is about. And so this God, the God uh, of, that, who is revealed to us in Scripture, he's revealed as Father, Son, and Spirit. Uh, the, the, one, the, 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 the person of God who we're focusing on this morning is the Father. He relates to us as Father, and we relate to him as family. Okay? He's, he, is, uh, he reveals himself to us as Father. He's, just, he's named Father at least 165 times in the Gospels by Jesus. Uh, the Apostle Paul refers to the Father at least 40 times in his work. And this is not just a New Testament uh, reality. Uh, the Old Testament names him as Father at least 15 times that I could find. Uh, and there he is the Father of Israel. Israel is his children. Israel is sometimes referred to as, as his son. And so these are not two different gods between the Old and the New Testaments. He is one God. He's good and loving and he's uh, faithful. And we should ask, uh, what do we do with this idea that God is Father? Like, what difference should it make in our lives if, if God is Father? This is actually important because there are some people who struggle with the creed. They trip over the creed, particularly the idea that God is Father, as though Christians believe that God is male. And so they might struggle with that. As though, you know, as though the win of the creed is that, um, you know, that God is more like a, a father than he is like a mother. And I'm like, no, wait a minute, that's not, that's not what we're saying here. There's some people who, who might love the creed because it excludes uh, false, teachers, false teachers and heretics like, like Marcion, as though um, the win of the creed is that it just silences everybody who has a bad idea. And I'm, I'm like, that's, that's not the win of the creed either. So what is the benefit of having the creed? What do we do with this? Um, what does it give us? Uh, and I really like um, the answer that we have from Ben Myers, who actually wrote a book on the Apostles' Creed. He says, when we speak to God, and God listens to us as if we were Jesus, Jesus is, sorry, uh, God listens to us as if we were Jesus. Jesus is God's child by nature, and we become God's children by grace. So when we confess that God is Father, it's not a theological idea, but a confession of the defining relationship of our lives. We call God Father because that is what Jesus calls God and because Jesus has invited us to relate to God in the same way. Jesus has invited us to relate to God in the same way. I think that's huge. So the win here isn't in knowing that God is a father and not a mother. The win of the creed is also not just being right as though knowing the truth about who this God is is the same as loving the truth. Those are not the same thing. The win of the creed is that the, this God reveals himself to us as a father. We get to relate to God as father, as a parent. That's huge. That's huge. He's a, he is a father. It's not, that, it's not like, uh, you know, you know we, we don't need to be afraid. He doesn't want anything to do with us. It's not like he's too busy for us. Um, 
That's huge. God is a father. And, and here I would just pause and ask us to reflect for a second, like before we go on. In your life, what does it look like that God is revealed as father? What, is it, what does that look like? Do you relate to him as, as his child? Okay. Now, what does it mean that God is almighty? What do we mean when we say that God is almighty? It's, it's, it involves two things. One is authority and one is power. So fun fact about the Apostles' Creed. When it, was, when it first was formulated, it was, it, it was Greek, uh, out in the east parts of the Roman Empire. And then as it moved west, it uh, was translated into Latin. So this part of the Apostles' Creed that uses the word almighty, the word that's translated into English as almighty, so in, in the Greek, it's this word uh, pantokrator, which you don't, I don't expect you to know, but it means like it's a, it's a word about authority, like over everything God rules, over everything God is in charge. It's about authority. He has absolute authority. When the creed was translated into Latin, they didn't have a word exactly like that. They didn't have a word that communicates that idea. The closest word was this Latin word, omnipotens which you may have heard as the, the English word omnipotent, which is an attribute of God, that God has the power to do anything. He is all-powerful. He's unstoppable. Like, he can, do, uh, he can do whatever. He's powerful over everything. And so when we say the creed and we say that God is almighty, is that about authority or is it about power? And it's about both. It's about authority and power. In Scripture, God has absolute authority. Think about it, like in, in, in Proverbs, you've got this description of God who is, it, it says that the king's heart, a king's heart is a stream in the, in, of, sorry, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hands of the Lord. God turns it wherever he will. In Daniel 4, you've got the story of Nebuchadnezzar, who was this amazing king, and he, he learned that he's not as big a deal as he actually thought that he was. He, Nebuchadnezzar comes to this point where he confesses that God's dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and God does according to his will. In the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus wanted to, con- to uh, communicate to everybody how they don't need to be afraid because God's in charge. And he said, he, the way he did that is he asked them, aren't two sparrows sold for a penny? And yet not one of them falls to the ground without your father's will. Apart from your father's say-so. Now, how many, how many of you grew up with a parent who answered the question, why, with the answer, uh, because I said so? Yeah? Um, I did. I did too. So I would be, you know, if I wanted something, I asked mom, and if she didn't give me the answer that I wanted, I might go to my dad. Now, my mom had the right to say no. She had the authority to say no, and she would say, because I said so. And if I didn't like that answer, I might go to my dad, who had equal authority in my family, and I might try to get a different answer, which is not okay. Um, But if he said yes, and then I was like eating ice cream just before bed, and mom was like, I thought I told you no. I'd be like, well, dad said, I know you said no, but dad said yes, and you guys have equal authority, and I don't understand how that works. And, And so... Just so you know, at this point in the creed, one of the things we mean by Almighty is that God is never overruled. He is never outvoted. There's no veto on, on God's will. He has all the authority. He has all the passwords. God is the one who has all the keys, all right? He has all authority, and he's got unlimited power. 
In Scripture, you've got this God who is revealed as absolutely sovereign over creation. He does what he wants with nature. He, he speaks a, an earth, a planet and a universe into being. He, uh, he can part a, a sea. He can rain fire on a city. He can multiply uh, loaves and fishes as, when, when Jesus asks him. He has control over these things. Uh, when in the book of Job, if you've read Job lately, you know that Job learns a, a hard lesson about what God can do. He says, I know that you can do anything and no plan of yours can be thwarted. Uh, in, in Genesis, the story of Joseph. At the end of the story of Joseph, uh, Joseph's brothers are face to face with him after they had uh, beat him up and abandoned him and betrayed him. And now they're face to face with him and they realize they're in his hands and at his mercy. And what's he going to do with us? And what Joseph says to them is, hey, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? This is Genesis 50. You planned evil against me. God planned it for good. The evil that you planned against me, God planned that evil for good. And so this is important. When we say, I believe in God the Father Almighty, we're saying we believe in a God whose power is infinite and unstoppable. Again, he's never outvoted. He's never overruled. Um, there is no veto on, on his will. That's what we mean. And so I just would pause here again and ask you to consider, what does this do for you? What does this mean in your life? How do you feel about the fact that God is almighty? Does that strike you as a comfort? Or is that something that is, is troubling? And I'll acknowledge it does raise a lot of questions, doesn't it? Okay? So you're free to ask those questions. In fact, we'll come back to this a little bit at the end. But I want to go on and ask, what do we mean when we say that God is creator of heaven and earth? And I'm going to be honest here. uh, Full disclosure, I've been waiting to say some of these things for about 10 years. Right? I don't know if you know this or not, but there's a little bit of disagreement within the body of Christ about how creation works. About not just, you know, about what we believe about creation and what, we, what, we, um, what we're meant to believe about it. So I do think we need to come to the, 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 the scripture teaching about creation with a little bit of honesty. Okay? A little bit of honesty. Because I do think we want to be right. We want to know that our view is the true one. And I totally get that. We want to be able to look at others and, and instruct them and, and help them believe the thing that we believe. And I wish that I believed that creation was as simple as some teachers make it sound. Uh, one guy who comes to mind is uh, as a, a teacher who's actually been very helpful in my life. His name is John MacArthur. Uh, he's a pastor in the United States. Um, and he, he holds a view called Young Earth Creationism. And his view is, uh, he, he would say he takes the text literally, especially Genesis 1 and 2, and he is a pretty outspoken critic of other views of creation. And so recently he did an interview where he was asked, what do you think, John MacArthur, about the idea that there are all these other creation views out there? What do you think of that? And he answer, his answer was this, these are all uh, de facto rejections of the authority and perspicuity or the, the, um, the clarity of Scripture. They represent a refusal to allow Scripture to mean what it plainly says, while relying on novel theories, uh, while relying on novel theories no one ever imagined before to explain the true, albeit hidden, meaning of the text. That is as wrong-headed as it is arrogant. In other words, for John MacArthur, and I totally get how he would, how he might land at this conclusion, but if you believe, 
If you're somebody who believes that God made the earth about four billion years ago, as some do, you're somebody who has surrendered the authority of Scripture. And, and that may be true. But we don't know that. We don't want to assume that. We want to see what does Scripture actually say, or what, is, what does it teach? What does Scripture ask us to believe about these things, right? Now, most Christians believe, and I would say that this is true, that the way that Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 relate to each other is that Genesis 2 is a bit of a restatement of what happened in Genesis 1, which Maggie read for us a little bit ago. That Genesis 2 retells that story, uh, but slightly differently. Um, The thing is, when you put Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 side by side, really carefully, and I don't mean to like throw off your faith here, but there are some important distinctions and differences that need to be pointed out. For example, the earth begins differently between Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. So in Genesis 1, the earth begins uh, sort of in a chaotic way, covered with water. Genesis 2 begins with land. Uh, there's, there's, there's ground, there's dry land, but there are no plants or water or people. So that itself, that's not a deal breaker, but you've got to do something with that. Um, the creation order between Genesis 1 and 2 is different. So Genesis 1 begins with, with uh, this chaotic water world, uh, and then light, and then dark, and then sky, and sea, and land, and then plants, and animals, um, and then finally humans, like the climax, or the apex of creation. In Genesis 2, you've got God forming a man out of dust first, then you've got a garden, then you've got the rivers, then animals, and finally you've got a woman at the end of it all. Again, that's, that itself isn't a deal breaker, but you've got to figure out what are we going to do with that, right? Then, uh, the number of people created is different between Genesis 1 and 2. In Genesis 1, you have what looks like God made at least two people, if not the whole human race. He made them male and female. In his image, he created them. Um, But in Genesis 2, God makes a man, he forms him out of dust, and he didn't make a woman until after, until after Adam had named all of the animals. So what do you do with this? You got we should be honest, like, is this a problem? Like, is this, are these, are these contradictions? And the answer is actually, yes. If, if they are contradictions, if, we are meant to read Genesis 1 and 2 through a flat, literal lens that, that, it, that takes it all uh, at the same, or that, that holds them all at the same level, that flattens them and takes them literally, then those are contradictions. So we've got to be honest here. Nobody reads Genesis 1 and 2 in exactly the same way. Every, even John MacArthur has to take Genesis 1 and 2, and he has to smooth out those differences so that they fit together. And that's what every creation view needs to do. So whatever you believe about creation, you need to do a little bit of interpreting. We have to be honest. And so here, I just want to be honest with you. I refuse to grant, okay, full disclosure. I refuse to grant that young earth creationism is the or the only biblical view. Okay? I'm not saying that it's untrue. I'm not even saying that I don't believe it. Okay? But you don't have to believe the earth is young in order to be saved. And it's great if you do. It's okay if you don't. And if you haven't figured this out yet. But if you say that, you know, you have to hold this view or another view in order to uh, affirm the authority of Scripture, I'm going to say, wait a minute. 
That is not totally, you're not being totally intellectually honest here. So we need to be a little bit honest. Because the truth is, the creed allows for actually uh, quite a bit of diversity. People who are smarter than me about these things say that there are as many as like 9 or 11 creation views. Now, I'm not going to lay out what all of those are, but I will name a few really quickly, just to see some of the the, uh, explanations that are out there. One is what I just mentioned, young earth creationism. And this assumes that the days named in, in chapter 1 are literal 24-hour days. And so because of that, it, uh, the, the conclusion is that the earth is, is pretty young, a little more than 6,000 years old. Okay? Another one is what's called the gap theory. Have you heard of this one before? So the gap theory assumes that between Genesis 1-1, God created, in the beginning, God made the heavens and the earth. And then the rest of chapter 1, between verses 1 and 2 in chapter 1, there is a gap of time, okay? And in that gap of time, there was this war in heaven between Satan and his his demons and God and his angels, and it wrecked the earth. And so Genesis 1 tells the story of how the earth is remade and reformed and refashioned in order to make it habitable by by people. Um, So that's the the gap theory. Another one is what's called the framework view. How many of you have heard of this one? A couple. Uh, this view uh, assumes that Genesis 1 is kind of like a poem or a song, and Genesis 2 is the narrative that explains it. So Genesis 1 has a framework. It has a, 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 a structure, like a song does. You've got a, a chorus, like God saw that it was good. God saw that it was good. Um, you know, evening and morning the first day, the second day, the third day, it was good, and, and, and on and on. So there's this framework. And, and Genesis 2 describes or explains in a narrative way what happened in chapter 1. There's the day-age theory. Uh, this very simply assumes that the, the days in chapter 1 are not 24-hour days, but long periods of time. And so, typically, a day-age uh, person would say that the earth is millions or billions of years old. Uh, the last one that I'll name here is what's called theistic evolution. So this view, uh, these people believe that God made the world, he made the universe, he is absolutely responsible. He gets full credit for creating the world, but that Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 are figurative or metaphorical, uh, you know, language. Um, They give God full credit for that. Now, I want to be honest with you. I think you can believe any one of these views and be deeply persuaded that God is, according to the creed, creator of heaven and earth. Is that true? You're like, I don't know, man. I don't know if I'm willing to grant some of those things. Um, the creed leaves some room for diversity. It also, I think, inspires us to do, it drives us to, to do a little bit of study. Because I want to be really clear here. I'm not saying that I think all of those views are, e- are equally valid. I don't think that they're all true. Um, but we do need to wrestle with these things. And we can't just jump onto a view because the culture thinks it's really plausible or feasible or, 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 or acceptable or whatever. This takes some work and study because each of us is responsible to know what we believe about these things and why. And so, you know, think of the Bible in, in the same way you think of a newspaper. If you have a newspaper, you know that in, within that one document, you've got a whole bunch of different kinds of writing that you treat differently. You'll come to some articles and you'll read those that report on events and you know you need to interpret those a certain way, right? You know that in the same newspaper there might be an editorial where that's one person's opinion. That's that's one person expressing and defending their view. You might have in the same newspaper, you might have uh, advertising and you read that a certain way. And you have maybe on the the obituaries page or the the celebrations page, you've got 
uh, some poetry or some songs, and you know that that is a different kind of writing. You expect different things of each of these different kinds of writing, right? You don't expect uh, a song or a poem to report on the historical events in the same way that an article does. And you don't expect that article to be memorable and to sort of bounce around and echo in your mind as you go about your day. You have different expectations of those kinds of writing. And the Bible is the same way. This takes some work. This takes some interpret- interpretation. And you're all doing that anyway, regardless of what the question is or whatever the view is. But as we study the Bible, we need to ask, what kind of writing am I looking at? Like, what is it? Is it obvious, for example, that I should take this literally? Or is there some other approach that I should take? The other thing I think we should do here as we study is we need to be prepared to take all of what Scripture says about this. On any, on any question that you would want to answer, you would want to know what does the entire Bible say about this thing. And just so you know, if your entire creation view is based on Genesis 1 and 2, you are missing out on huge chunks of the book of Isaiah and uh, Job and the Psalms and Revelation and Colossians. And so you, if you want to have a, a full view of what, what God has said, what God wants us to know about creation, you need to include Genesis 1 and 2, but go beyond it. Okay? So the, the creed really needs to, it will push us, I believe, to study. It also requires a choice to practice unity. The creed requires uh, us to, uh, to make a choice to practice unity. Um, let me ask here, how many of you, as I was going through that list of creation views, how many of you, you felt that I described a view that you hold as your own? Like your view was one of the ones that I named. Okay, most of us. How many of us are not sure? Totally fine. You know, what I, you know what's really cool about that is that in the same church family, in the, among the, same, the group of people who say we belong to benediction, you've got some people who are fairly persuaded and some people who aren't sure. And it works. Okay? Just so you know, to be a member of Benediction Church, you don't, we don't have, have a requirement of a certain um, you know, creation view. To be on the leadership team, we don't even have a, a required view. Uh, uh, to, be on, to be on the leadership team uh, of Benediction, we don't require a creation view. So uh, Scott is here, uh, Courtney is here, who is on the leadership team. We, I, don't, I have no idea what you guys believe about creation. We've never talked about it, and it has not been a point of... Rolf, I, we have never talked about creation. It has never been a point of division. And I think this is an issue that doesn't need to be. It's an example of an issue on which we can have, we can have unity, even though we have different conclusions uh, about the issue. Isn't that great? Is that, okay? is that good? I don't know that every issue is like that. Not every issue is going to be like that. But this is an issue where we can practice unity. And then I think this, is, this also requires us to practice a little bit of charity. A little bit of charity. A little bit of grace. A little bit of kindness. And here's what I mean by that. If you're really passionate that the earth is very, very old, that's totally great. God bless you. But you don't get to treat the other people in your church family as though they are uneducated or they're like flat earthers or something like that, okay? That's not okay. At the same time, if you're somebody who believes that the earth is very young, if you believe that you take scripture very, you know, literally and that you have a biblical view of creation, God bless you. But you are not allowed to treat the rest of the people in our church family as though they are liberals or progressive or they've sacrificed the authority of Scripture. That's not okay. Neither of these things uh, is okay. The truth is, if we believe together that God the Father Almighty is creator of heaven and earth, if we share that, 
we actually have some really important things in common. Isn't that true? If we, both, if we all sort of affirm that much, we have some really important things in common, and that makes us family. And my goodness, we can practice that. Let's act like it. Let's treat each other with kindness and grace and charity. Let's not forget that the win of the Apostles' Creed isn't getting people to believe that the earth is very young or very old and having the, the most refined, sophisticated creation view team. That's not the win of the Apostles' Creed, okay? The win of the Apostles' Creed is that the God, on this point in particular, is that the God who created the heavens and the earth, that God, he wants to be known. He wants to be known. And so here, I'll pause one more time as we begin to wrap up. What has it added to your life? What has it added to your life to know the God who made the heavens and the earth? To think that the God who made the heavens and the earth, who a lot of people would think he's too busy, he could care less about what's going on on this little blue marble called earth. That God wants to be known. What has that done in your life? What has that added to your life to know that God? Um, I, I, just, I love that this is how the Apostles' Creed begins. I think this is exactly what we need. This view of a big God. I just want you to know, I know that I'm a, a bit older than, than uh, most of you here, uh, quite a bit older than some of you, and one of the things that I realize at this point in my life is that I need a view of God where He is big and glorious and sovereign, and He doesn't always explain Himself to me. I know that I need to pin my life and my choices to that God. They need to be rooted in a God like that. I need that. I think we all need that. And the Apostles' Creed gives us that. Because I think if you were to look back at what's been going on in your life over the last week or month or year, I bet some really amazing things come to mind, right? You've got some real things to celebrate. And I don't know what you are thankful for this morning. But if we believe the creed, if we believe that there, we, have a, we have a God who is Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, we actually have a God who deserves credit for the good things in our lives. Right? We have a God who is big enough to have our backs uh, and, to, and to look out for us. But I bet as you look back, there are some hard things that come to mind too. I bet, and, and I know that some of us have gone through some stuff uh, in, in the last little while. I don't know what those things are uh, in, in all of your lives, but you do. You know what comes to mind. Uh, and you know, I think you know by now, that God hasn't promised to tell us all the reasons why these things happen. He hasn't promised to tell us all the reasons why these things happen. But, but if we know, like we don't, we, again, let me just be really clear about that. We don't know uh, why God allows all these things. We don't know the reason why all these things happen. But if we believe the creed, okay, if we believe the creed, we have a big God and we know what those reasons are not. Okay? We don't always know what the reasons are, but if we believe the creed, we actually know what those reasons are not. And that's more than a, you know, a secular person actually has. I don't know all the reasons. I know, what all the, I know what the reasons are not. Like, for example, we know that when hard things happen, our suffering is not because God made the world evil and wicked and in order to punish you because he can't stand you and he's out to get you. That is not why these things happen. We are not Marcionites. 
That is so important. We know, we know it's also not, these, these hard things are not because God is too busy or he isn't, doesn't care or he isn't interested. We know that beyond the shadow of a doubt. We know it's not because God doesn't have the power. It doesn't, it's not because God doesn't have the authority to act in these things. And it's not because uh, God is angry at us. It's not because God is punishing us. He hasn't turned his back on us. The creed reminds us that God is a father. He has adopted us, right? He's our father who has adopted us into his family through Jesus. He is almighty, and I'm, I'm not. We're not. He is responsible for the creation of heaven and earth. He manages it, and, and, and that's not my responsibility. And so there is, there, there is comfort, and there is, there is joy and peace, and there is assurance in knowing that he's got these things, and, and it's not up to us. We can trust him with these things. Thank you for listening.